We are in the book of Ecclesiastes here. We're in week two. We just launched this series. And to, to let you know, how do we get to the book of Ecclesiastes? I just want to remind you of this. Um, so our pastoral team, as we were thinking, praying, like talking about the new year and where we should head in the new year, the conversation brought up this uh, pattern that we've seen. We've seen there's times in people's lives where it seems like people live with purpose when it comes to their faith, when it comes to maybe their family. Maybe that's the community of faith, like being really connected, serving, investing in relationships, maybe living generously. It's often high school, actually middle school, high school, um, when you've got a great youth group, and we've got a, a great program for kids that move them closer to Jesus. When that's happening and kids have a good set of friends and leaders that are investing in them and, and encouraging them to move towards Jesus, for many, that's a season of really like being intentional about faith and purposeful in their lives and moving towards a goal, right? Graduation, oftentimes getting into school, different things. And then um, this isn't like a big surprise anybody. And these are broad strokes, okay? All of this that I'm talking about, these are broad strokes. This, this may be you, this may not be you, but I'm betting you know somebody who, who uh, has gone through this. For many young adults, statistically, when they uh, head off to college, get into a new, a new town, maybe uh, a, a new college, new set of friends, for many, um, there's this like season where they drift, they tend to look for meaning and purpose inward, in self, or in pleasure. And some of those are like young adult. That's not a, a big surprise that sometimes this is a season where many of them walk away from God. Now, we've noticed that over the years, as, as uh, many of those grow up and get married and start having kids of their own, this thing happens, this thing clicks, where it's like, wow, actually, that meant a lot to me growing up. I'm so glad my parents raised me in that. And so we see a lot of young adults begin to come back, get their kids, get really involved, get really serious about their faith. So we've observed that. But then we've we've observed this other interesting trend that as we put things together, we're like, wow, we never saw that before. And that's, there, there's this other season then as, as, as families are approaching like empty nest, launching their kids out in the world, and they're like, whoo, we did it. We raised some halfway decent human beings and we're going to launch them into the world. Whoo. There's this thing I think that goes off in people's minds. There's something in our minds, something in our hearts that tells ourselves my reward for working really hard for all these years to accomplish this goal or for being so disciplined or so connected is I'm going to reward that by looking inward. I'm going to reward discipline or achievement with self-focus. Now, really nobody ever just comes out and says that. It's a subtle thing. It's something that's a, that, that happens inside the heart. It's like this idea of, man, I've worked really hard. I just deserve some me time. And for so many, it just starts out as, you know what? In this season, we're kind of checking out of that group that's been really valuable for us because we're just going to go do some fun things or, you know, <clears throat> skiing on the weekend, golf on the weekend. Um, instead of a couple months ends up being like you turn around and you're like, man, five years have come by and we've been really, like, disconnected from community and from faith. And before you know it, you feel further from God than you ever have. Also, a lot of times, these seasons are where some of our greatest regrets happen, right? I mean, that's not a surprise either. Um, young adult years, man, how many of you have, have things that happen in your young adult years that you regret and wish you could go back and change? Show of hands, come on. Young adults, look around the room. So just listen up. That's some wisdom there. <laughs> 
Because there's some things that, that you think would have been great in the moment, but you turn back and, and it's like, wow, that wasn't so great. I wish I could have gone back and change it. Also, um, oftentimes later in life, this is when like midlife crisis happened. And uh, some of you have a motorcycle payment. You, could, you wish you could go back and change. You're like, that was kind of not smart. Um, some of you have some skinny jeans. You wish you could go back and change. I don't know. That was an easy one. Not, that's not a big deal. Some of you have a tattoo. You're like, that wasn't such a great idea. And those things are kind of light, but actually um, some of you have relationships that were blown up. Some of you have real regrets and heartache and hurt. You walked away from something or into something you wish you could go back and change. We've observed this, and oftentimes it comes, it begins in disconnecting. And this brought us to Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes addresses an underlying assumption that we have in life that, as we said, like, why is this? What, what makes us do this? Um, it brought us to Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes addresses this thing that I think is within all of us to certain levels. And that is the idea that happiness is a destination that can be arrived at if I just... That if I could just get there, if I could just grab onto it, happiness is something I can cling to, I can achieve, I can gain in my life because where I'm at right now, I'm not feeling it. I think it's an idea we all have. It's, it's embedded deep within us. In fact, uh, there's a famous philosopher, Pascal, who said this. He said, all men, all humankind seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's kind of dark there in the end. He says, happiness, the pursuit of happiness, it's universal in the heart of humankind. That we think we can just get there. We think we can arrive. We pursue happiness. In fact, for us in our nation, it's a fundamental right. Isn't it? Now, kids are no exception. They're just a lot less complicated than us grown-ups, aren't they? Kids are no exception. In fact, what does a kid need to be happy? Bubbles. <laughs> My wife's our children's director, and she's like, it's amazing. Like, kids can be crying. You just pull out the bubbles. That's all it takes. <sighs> bubbles. I mean, kids will sit for hours and blow bubbles, and chase bubbles, and look at the shiny bubbles and the sun sparkling off them and go, look, I caught it, I caught it, I caught it, I caught it. It's so fun, isn't it? Bubbles. It is kind of fun. But here's, here's the thing I've watched with kids. If you have kids, you know this, or grandkids. It doesn't take very long before bubbles get replaced by something, right? I've never seen a teenager running around for hours going, bubbles, chasing them. No. Bubbles become a new phone, um, new clothes, group of friends, a new gaming system, PS5, right? That's what bubbles become, like a new thing that's shiny and fun, and we go after. And then as adults, we just try to blow bigger bubbles to try to recreate that feeling of joy that we experienced and freedom we experienced as a kid. Have you noticed that? We just try to create bigger bubbles. Let me show you. Bubbles. Isn't that cool? <laughs> we just try to broke bigger bubbles, right? 
Now, here's what our bubbles are as grown-ups. As grown-ups, our bubbles are typically centered around an unconscious assumption. Like the thing we go after, the shiny thing we chase, is I could arrive at happiness if I just, if I just, if I just get that degree, if I just get into that house, if I just get into that circle of friends, if I just get into that shape, if I just get, uh, you know, into that relationship, then I'll be there. Then I'll feel it. In fact, Dr. Brian Gibson, the author that wrote the book that we shamelessly stole the title of this series from, he wrote a book called Living Life Backward. And here's what he says about this. He says, the preacher, referring to Solomon, who uh, the words of this teaching are coming from, he says, the preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. That bubbles are actually the things to distract us and insulate us from the reality that a lot of times life isn't very pretty. A lot of times life is very hard and very confusing. And he says what Solomon does is is he's going to remind us of this over and over and over. Because what is the problem with bubbles? What is the problem with bubbles? They pop. They always pop, don't they? I don't care. You can catch one like your kid and and run around with it. And it's like, woo, I got a bubble. It pops. Eventually, you may hold on to it for a couple of minutes, but it's going to pop. In fact, did anybody have like a mean sibling and you blew? Anybody do the, you try to get like 16 pieces of gum in your mouth and then blow the biggest bubble you can? We always did this. And it was like, always like, pop it. Somebody's going to pop your bubble. Life is going to pop your bubble. And in the text today, what we're going to see is the preacher, Solomon, he's going, to, he's going to tell us about how he set out to blow some really big bubbles to pursue happiness through learning, through pleasure, through success, through wealth, through women, in the pursuit of happiness to fill that thing that was missing within him. And along the way, he's going to burst some of the bubbles that we think will bring us that meaning and happiness in life. So, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 12, right where we left off last week. And here's what Solomon the preacher says. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity and a striving after the wind, chasing something that can't be grasped. And so he he introduces two, or he reminds us of two phrases he brought up in the first part of the book. We saw this last week. Two phrases, under the sun, and vanity. So he says, I want to remind you, he says, this is life under the sun. And what's interesting about Ecclesiastes, the name God doesn't even appear. God does not appear in the text until the end of the second chapter. So what he's describing to us is here is pursuit for meaning under the sun. 
This is what a naturalist can arrive at of trying life and saying it's all by chance, it's all by accident, um, or it all maybe in the past God wound it up and now sort of let it to go, but he's not really involved in the picture, a deist. This is how life works out. And he says, I've, I've been there, I've tried that. I've found under the sun, life under the sun, without a bigger picture, without God in the picture, it's vanity. Vanity. Some of your translations say meaningless. I don't think that's as good of a term because the point behind this is the Hebrew word habel. It means a vapor, a breath, a soap bubble. Something, it, it pops. Vapor, a breath, whew, it's gone. You can't cling to it. And that's the, the thing he's going to point out is even when we looked at this last week is even though so many things in life feel like they're, they're very meaningful, some are meaningful, you still can't hang on to them, right? You can't control life. You can't sort of squeeze it into your form. It always escapes you. You can't grasp it. Life is short, isn't it? Life is short. In fact, uh, if, if you're like over 30 or 40, you probably use the phrase, time flies. How did that go by so fast? I mean, once you have kids, it's just like, I know the first couple of years feel like they take forever. And then it's like you blank and they're teenagers with hairy armpits and stinky. You're like, what happened? Um, it happens quick. And I know some of you are like, teenagers? I got, like, that's my grandkids now, right? We said last week a quote. I can't remember who said it, but I thought it was so, uh, so good. In the body of every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Can any uh, people say amen to that in the room? You don't want to admit you're old, but like in my head, I'm still in my 20s, like cool, young, leading, playing guitar, right? And then I look in the mirror, like, eh, maybe not so much. It's short, isn't it? It's fleeting. You can't cling to it. You can't hang on to it. But we try all manner of things to distract ourselves and insulate ourselves from that reality. But it always catches up with us, doesn't it? The bubbles we blow always pop. We are always reminded of the fact that life is outside of our control, that it goes by fast. You can't escape that reality in life. See, what Solomon does is he's going to confront us. He's going to smack us across the side of the head with reality. That's the first couple chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is reality. I was reminded of this yesterday. I got a phone call yesterday morning from one of my closest high school friends. He's like, did you hear? I'm like, no, what, what's going on? His little brother passed away last week. I mean, I grew up with this kid, fun-loving, great smile, younger than me, gone. That's reality. It's uncomfortable. It's out of our control. And it's actually something that we need to wrestle with if we want to learn how to live a life with meaning. It's something we need to learn how to confront instead of just trying to distract ourselves, blowing bubbles, right? And so Solomon is going to tell us how he tries to distract himself and how he tries to find meaning and happiness in life under the sun, apart from God in the picture. So he starts out like this. He says uh, in verse 15, this is the pursuit of of wisdom, the vanity of the pursuit of education, higher learning, all these things, learning everything you can learn and being the smartest one in the room. Here's what he says. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
I, have, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You've heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss. There's some truth in that. And that's what Solomon goes on to say. God gave him incredible wisdom more than anyone that's ever walked the face of this earth, except for Jesus. And in fact, uh, we see in Kings, and uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible expresses the idea this way. He said, God gave Solomon wisdom, the deepest understanding and the largest of hearts. There was nothing beyond him, nothing he could not handle. It says uh, he was wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite. Dude, that guy was smart. Um, he was wiser than Heman, wiser than Calco and Darda, the sons of Mahal. Man, they were legendary. Those were the nerds, man. They knew everything. He knew about plants from the huge cedars that grow in Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows in the cracks of the wall. He understood everything about the animals and birds and reptiles and fish sent by kings from all over the earth who had learned of his reputation. People came from far and near to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. He's like, I studied it, I learned it, I studied Confucius and systems of philosophy and naturalism and the, the religions of Babylon and Sumeria and the Epic of Gilgamesh and everything and the early roots and foundations of what ended up leading to the Greek philosophers, all of that long before they were here, been there, done that, have the degrees on my wall to show it. And my conclusion? All of this learning, trying to find the deeper meaning of life under the sun, apart from a bigger purpose, it's vanity. It's just a struggle. I, I, what I've observed is that all we're doing is what has been made crooked. We've been trying to make straight by learning more and more and more and more, trying to fix, and we can't fix the fundamental problem in humankind. There's something missing in everything we try to learn. It's, it's not fixing it. We can't escape death. We can't escape this sense that there's something missing, that we all know we live in a broken world, and as much technology as we create, as much as you think, hey, if your kids just get into the best school and get the best grades and, like, all the degrees and have all the great opportunities, they're going to make something of themselves and change this world. And so you drive them and you drive them and you drive them to the point that many times it damages relationships. As much as you think that, Solomon's going to say, it didn't do it for me. It didn't do it. It didn't fill that thing that was missing. I gave them the greatest opportunities. I had the greatest opportunity. I learned it all, had all the degrees. It didn't fill that missing void in my heart. There's an Old Testament scholar named Ian Proven. He wrote uh, one of the commentaries um, that, I, that I read. And, and he was talking about going to this party and there's this philosophy major, um, brilliant kid, sitting over on the side at this raging party. He's got a bottle of vodka and he's rhythmically banging his head on the wall. Some of you know the feeling. The smarter you get sometimes, the more miserable you are. Some of the most miserable people in the history of the world, smartest guys, philosophers. Does that mean education is bad? No. It means you're not going to find that thing that's going to 
fill that missing part within it, though, you're not going to do it. So, now let me just talk to the young people in the room because you're like, all right, well, so the old dude, like, dude lived 3,000 years ago, some, some old dead king. What can I learn from him? All right, so he was small. He was smart. I don't like smart kids. I don't really like the nerdy kids in class. I'm the cool kid. I party. I have a good time. Like, I'm popular. I know how to live. What did Solomon have on me? He's going to talk to you too here, okay? So if you're feeling that, just, just, just listen up. Because next, he is going to say, okay, education didn't do it for me, so now I'm going to try hedonism. Literally, uh, hedonism from the Greek, hedonai, pleasure. I'm going to focus on me, myself, and I, my me time, and we're going to learn how to live it up and have a great time. I mean, he was like a thousand years ahead of like when Paul walked the earth and the Epicureans came up with their motto, YOLO. Um, that's how you know it. It was actually eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's no purpose or meaning, so let's just have a good time. And, Paul, and Solomon's like, I tried that a thousand years ago. Check it out. Here's, here's what I did. Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Pleasure. Have a good time. We're going to party. We're going to have raves. We're going to do it all. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I, I, he brought in like the best comedians. I don't know who's like big now. Um, anyway. But you have the stand-up comedians, you know, the redneck guys and the other guys and all the guys. And they're like, ha-ha, so funny. And he's like, meaningless. Okay. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom. He got plastered and took good notes. That's what he's saying. I tried it, but it was an experiment. So I took really good notes. Some of them, the handwriting wasn't as good, but I took good notes. I took good notes, and I had to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And here's what you got to know. If you're like, oh, what can I learn from this old dead guy? This guy had more parties than you could ever imagine having. He lived it up according to, like, what any of us would have ever in the freshman year of college or junior year would have said was living it up. He partied hard. In fact, check out, like, he would invite, like, 20,000 people to, uh, to his parties. That was his household. How was your kegger, huh? Yeah, you and six other lame friends. Okay. He's like, epic. 20,000 people. Check out, check out what he did. Here, here was his daily rations of supplies for his household. I mean, party after party, banquet after banquet, feast after feast. 7,700 pounds of fine flour. That's a lot of croissants. 18,000 pounds of cornmeal. That's a lot of tortillas. A lot of street tacos there, bro. I'm just saying. Um, 10 grain-fed cattle. In the case you're like a health nut, you're like, I prefer grass-fed. Okay. He said 20 range cattle. We'll bring some of those in too. 100 sheep. I like lamb. Okay, we got you covered. And if, that, if you're really eclectic... Um, we got miscellaneous, this is what the message says, and miscellaneous deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. All of those. Just in case. Sorry, vegetarians. Well, I guess he's got the cornmeal covered, so you're good, too. You're good. Pleasure, 
Wine, oh yeah, the finest of wine, vats and vats of wine. It flowed every single night. He explored pleasure and parties and comedians and musicians. He drank it, smoked it, partied it, slept with it, going for it to try to find meaning and happiness in pleasure. I mean, he brought in a DJ from Ibiza, and they came in, and it was just night after night. Oons, oons, oons. And now, why do, why do we do this? Because we still think going after pleasure. You see, Solomon discovers something here, and this is something that, man, if you're like under 30 in the room, you need to tune into this and listen up. Because for some, like, we go after pleasure because, like, you had parents that were like, don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. Why? Because they said so. That's actually a good answer when your kids are young. Like, I said so. Okay, but anyway, that's another topic. And Solomon's going to say, no, don't do that because I tried it and it doesn't lead where you think it's going to do. It doesn't going to do for you what you think it's going to do. Sometimes it's rebellion. Sometimes the kid just grew up in that and that's all they've ever known. And so it's drugs, it's sex, it's alcohol, it's porn, it's all that stuff trying to fill that empty feeling and having fun. And, and for a while, for many kids, it is fun. Like for a lot of them, they look back at some of the, like, man, actually that party was fun. That spring break was fun. But here's what happens invariably for so many people is that what started as fun, what started as a pursuit of pleasure quickly becomes slavery. It quickly turns into something you can't stop doing because here's what happens. The problem, this is what philosophers call the problem of pleasure. The problem of pleasure is that it's not real life, right? You can, you can party, but before you know it, life's going to smack you in the face. Life's going to remind you that sometimes a wicked person lives till 90 while a good person dies of cancer at, in their 20s. And you're like, What? You're going to get a phone call. You're going to be reminded of this. And, and eventually you won't be able, these things won't match up. And what started as a pursuit of fun and pleasure turns into anesthetizing your pain. Right? How many of you, show of hands, in the room, have somebody in your family, extended family, whose life was destroyed and relationships broken because of something right surrounding this? Addictions. Yeah, look around you because it's almost... Like, you're like, like that. Raise them higher, because the young people need to know. Like, this is where it leads. That's the thing. That's where it leads every time. Every time. If you don't wake up. And Solomon says, I tried it. I tried it. I've been there. I partied harder than you could ever imagine partying, and it didn't fill that place in my soul. And so, next, he moves on. Because you're like, okay, well, education, <laughs> I got all the degrees. That didn't do it for me. Um, still feel that sense of something's missing, and I can't find it. Um, I think that's a song. Um, then partying, that was fun for a little while, but pff, that bombed. Didn't do it for me. And so then he's going to go on to see if success and wealth and all the things that many of you in the room are passionately pursuing right now will do it for him. Here's what he says. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. So I could put all the little reptiles and birds that all these kings gave me in there. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
I got after it. I built stuff. I'm going to make something out of myself. I'm going to make my mark in this world and leave something behind. I'm going to do it. I've got goals, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a millionaire before I turn 30. I read some of those books. Didn't work for me. Might work for you. Never know. But even if it does, here's what Solomon wants to say. Like, I've done this all. I've tried it. Here's, here's what the message tells us when you go back and read in Kings about how this is described, how successful Solomon was. Like, at this point, the, the kingdom of Israel was densely populated. It says, like the sand on an ocean, ocean beach. The people were ha- happy. They, they ate and drank. It said Solomon was sovereign over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates. That meant all the way over to Iraq. All the way over to the Mediterranean. And all the way down to Egypt. Huge superpower. He's led the nation to be a superpower. And they brought tribute. All these kings of all these different leaders and rulers, they brought tribute and were vassals of Solomon all his life. A vassal is like a subservient king who has to pay taxes to another king. He's like, I was the greatest king in this whole area. And they all paid me. They all sent me stuff. In fact, the queen of Sheba, when she comes up from Egypt, um, just because she's heard, like, Solomon is legendary, right? She's like, I don't believe it. And she comes up and she meets Solomon and she's like, I didn't believe it was true. But now I can't believe this. What they said about your wisdom. Solomon, you're amazing. I see my children in your eyes. I don't know if she said that. I'm making that up, but that's how I picture that conversation went. (laughs) She's like, you're amazing. The wisdom, the kingdom. At this point in time, there was more wealth than you can imagine. We're told that silver, there was so much silver around. It was like it wasn't even valuable. It wasn't even valuable. Queen of Sheba, as she left, she gave Solomon... Four and a half tons of gold. How's that for a little, like, thank you present? Here's four and a half tons of gold. And expensive gems. The Bible says that there hasn't been a cargo of spices like that since that shipload that Queen Sheba brought to King Solomon. Dude is legendary. Wealthy beyond all imagination. And it doesn't stop there. He says, I got singers. I like the band. I bought the band. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines at his bidding. The delight of the sons of man. Got it all. Wealth, power, every fantasy fulfilled. I lived it up. I made something of myself. And then he's going to reflect on what all this did for him. He said, so I became great. I was. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So I was able to take really good notes. He says, and so whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I tried it all. For my heart found pleasure. Here's his reward. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for my toil. So he says, actually, you know what? Contrary to what, you know, many Christians believe that Anyone who doesn't follow Jesus uh, is living a miserable life. No, some of them are actually having a good time. Some are having a great time. In fact, they're doing things. They're enjoying it. They feel some fulfillment in that. He's like, yeah, I actually, I like building stuff. It was kind of cool. I found some fulfillment in that. I used to build stuff. 
before I just like ran my mouth. But I, I used to build stuff. I was talking to Winston. He's like, there's some hands-on things he loves doing because it's like my, my regular job, I can like check off boxes. There, there's never a like, okay, I'm done. Look at that. It's cool. <laughs> it's just when you're in like church, Sunday comes around, Saturday comes around every week. Like it's always the weekend. I don't know how that works. You're like, it's never the weekend. I'm the opposite. It's always the weekend. But there's that, like, there's a certain fulfillment. But what Solomon found out is, hey, what? It didn't do it for me. What was the pleasure? It, there was some fun. There was some enjoyment. There was even some fulfillment in seeing, like, I built that. Wow. But as soon as he built it, what is he thinking of? Guys, you know this. Because if you built stuff, if you're like a builder, you know it's kind of cool. But you build one, it's like, okay, what am I going to build next? Right? Because the, the funds, the joy is in doing it. In the building. You get it done and you're like, now what? So he's like, what did I get out of it? Fleeting, momentary pleasure. Life under the sun without a bigger picture. There's some fun to be had. A lot of that leads to pain. There's some cool stuff to do. Some of that, actually kind of cool. But it doesn't last. It's all vanity. It's all vanity. The party's awesome, man. Like Friday night was awesome. Saturday was like, well, that was awesome last night after, you know, the headache wore off. Let's do it again, bigger this time. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, a couple weeks into this thing, you're going, what now? Right? The thrill is gone. It's like a bigger bubble. It keeps popping. You're like, well, I'll try to build a bigger one. Shiny pop. Bigger? Eventually, you're just worn out. <laughs> one of our pastors, we were talking about this as we were doing sermon prep, and he's like talk, telling me about his nephew that uh, lives out of town, got a PlayStation 5 for Christmas, his dream. <laughs> got it. Finally got it. And then, like, they called it, and he was having, like, in tears, having an existential crisis on Christmas morning because <laughs> of the magic and the joy wearing off. And it's like, we've all experienced that, haven't we? Getting the thing you thought would do it, having that moment you thought would do it, and then being like, that was it? That was all? What next? He goes on, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was bubbles. They were pretty, they were shiny, they were kind of fun. Woo! Then they popped. This idea, what gain, what profit, he introduces this in the first part of this chapter we saw last week. What can be held on to? Nothing. He's like, as I saw all this, what I realized is I can't hang on to any of it. You realize King Tut, who died and buried with him, all, like, all this wealth and treasure and all this stuff, to take it with him after he's gone, didn't get to take it with him, right? Some archaeologist came and dug it up and stuck it in a museum. The world remembers you for a while and then forgets you. He goes on in, in, in verse 11. So, so I turned to consider wisdom and, and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? He has a realization like, I've done it all. Listen up, young people. Why should you listen to him? Because he's done everything that you're thinking is going to bring you success and meaning and fulfillment. And you're going to find that in. He's like, been there, done that. You're not going to outdo me. 
He's like, what can be done? Only what the king has already done. Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly. He's like, let me qualify this. It's better to be wise than to be an idiot. As there is more gain in light than darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Like, it's better to be wise than to blow up your life and live like an idiot. I will tell you that. But, (laughs) but, he says, yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. True. Live like an idiot. Maybe die young. Maybe not. Live wise. Maybe live to an old age. Maybe not. Out of our control. I mean, it's good. Eat healthy. Have good habits. Save for your retirement. All that. That's better than being an idiot and blowing your life up. But in the end... We're all headed to the same place. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Just feeling positively encouraged again this week? Just hang on. Hang on. He's going to get to something brighter. And so here's what he says. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity for of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And we illustrated this last week, remember, um, by saying, how many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? And three of you raised your hands because you looked it up on Ancestry.com recently. Now, the rest of you, here's what I know. Some of you, um, how many of you just felt so convicted? You're like, I feel so bad. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to ask my grandparents so I can remember that generation. Anybody? Didn't think so. That's going to be you in 75 years. Your great-great-grandkids, eh, who cares? <laughs> like you never lived. <laughs> Reality. He wants to get you depressed so that you will confront the reality of trying to find meaning under the sun. Okay? That's his goal. So, and here's how he responded to this. So I hated life. Now here's what I know. There's some of you in this room that you've been driving so hard. You felt so much pressure. You, you feel so much of a, of a sense of, I gotta do this to succeed so that my family or those people will look at me this way or I can get that and then I'll finally find, find meaning. That some of you, when I just read that, you're like, that's me. I hate life. You know, there's been seasons in my life, even in ministry, where I guess the best way I can describe it is I just, I've thought this myself. I'm like, I just feel like I'm being pushed through life with like a bony finger pushing in my back, pushing me. Go, do, succeed, make it. Just draw it driven. And some of you, that's where you're at right now. He says, I hated life. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, fleeting, a breath, a bubble. And side note, his son that he left it to was an idiot, split the kingdom in half. So he's right. He's like, it's going to happen. And it did. 
Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart? Striving of heart. Some of you feel that, don't you? Just that tension within that's driving you towards things that you think are going to bring happiness and meaning. You're like, I feel that. (laughs) The striving of heart for which he toils beneath the sun in this life, separated from a larger purpose, from God in the picture. He said, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. I go to sleep. I wake up thinking about everything I got to do when I get up. This is also vanity. See, I think this, if you'll pause and actually listen to this, the stark reality of what a man who's had a thousand women, who's achieved more wealth and success than you ever will, should inform you in the way you live your life. Because some of you, you are, you are trying to use goals to fix, like we said last week, you're trying to use goals to fix a soul problem. There's something in you that's driving you, and you can't quite put your finger on it, but you think, if I just blow that next bubble, that's going to do it. If I just blow that next bubble, it's going to do it. you got goals, man. You're achieving them. You're dominating. You're crushing it. Or you're not, and this is going to be the year. And Solomon says, why don't you just pause for a minute? Hey, look right here. Look at me. Hear this. Hear me, young person. This is how I spent my life. Now at the end of my life, having done more than you'll ever hope to accomplish, here's how it came out for me. Here's how it came out. I'm going to invite Winston up. We've got a couple of verses left, but I think we want to finish this chapter, don't we? Because <laughs> it gives us a ray of hope. Finally. Finally. Here's what he says. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Now, here's what's interesting. This, uh, when it says than, nothing better for a person than, that word actually isn't there in Hebrew. Some, a lot of translators just assume that goes in there, and some really smart scholars said that shouldn't be in there. And so maybe a better reading of this is there's nothing better for a person, or there's nothing literally that Hebrew word, like good for a person, other than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Here's what Solomon is saying. When you divorce the reality of a bigger purpose or meaning, guess what? You can still find enjoyment, but it's in the simple things. And there is some enjoyment. But that's all you got. There's pleasure in food. Who created that? God did. God did. He's the one who, who created life. Food tastes good. <laughs> There's fulfillment in building something and going, oh, wow. God's the original builder. We're made in his image. Yeah, there's some good. There's some good. There's some beautiful parts of life. Yeah, people who don't follow Jesus, some of them live happy lives and have great marriages. But that's all they they get here and now. Is here and now. Fleeting, pleasure. It's not bad. God created it. He's the one who created all that. He's the one who created a world that he said is good and placed man before the fall in a perfect environment, unbroken relationship with him, 
two like original genetic, <laughs> like the best of the best, Adam, Eve, in a garden, naked. And guess what the first commandment was? Be fruitful and multiply. God's not against pleasure. He's not up there trying to kill your pleasure and joy, but that's what many people think. Like about faith, that if I go and try this over here, um, basically the goal is to become a monk and move to the mountains, get a, like a whip and kind of go, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. All of life. No. Our God's a good God. And yet when you try to take the good things he's created and make those the things that are ultimate and the center of your life, and when you try to make them and be the things that you think are going to bring you happiness, it's never going to work. You will find yourself just like Solomon did in despair every time, every time. He says, this is a gift from God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? It's his grace. It's his mercy that he makes life bearable, even though we live in a broken world because of sin, because humankind introduced sin into the picture. Now, he introduces us to a bigger picture. He says, but here's, here's where you're going to find real meaning. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You want to find wisdom and knowledge that actually leads to joy instead of despair? It's found in him. It's found in a right relationship with him. It's found in aligning your life with the reality of what is, that he is a creator and you are a creature. And that life was meant to be given to you as a gift, to be enjoyed, not something to squeeze and try to control and manipulate so that you can somehow grasp happiness. That path isn't going to lead you there. Joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Apart from him, apart from a bigger reality of eternity, here's what you have. Striving, trying, earning a bunch of stuff, and then leaving it for somebody else because you can't take it with you. That is reality. And here's why this is so important, guys. See, Solomon had the means to do something that probably no one in this room will have the means to do, and that is to get to the utter end of themselves, to, to actually try and explore and blow every bubble that you think is going to bring you meaning and happiness. And what he discovered is it doesn't do it. You're never going to do that. You're always going to have something in your life where you're like, well, okay, but if I could just get there, if I could just get her, if I could just get that, if I could just get this next promotion or this next degree or get into that house. And, and if you're not careful, if you don't actually hear his words and stop and go, oh, wow, you're going to just spend your time running around a treadmill without ever getting to the end, thinking if I just incline it one more, bring it down up, then I'll be there. Then I'll be there. And Solomon says, I've tried it. I've done it. And it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. 
See, because in the garden you were created with, with something, uh, Solomon will describe it as eternity in our hearts. You were created with, with a space within you that only God could fill. And after the fall, when that relationship was broken and sin entered into the picture, our minds started going, well, I got to fill this because there's still a memory in the back of our hearts, in our souls that remembers what that unbroken relationship with God was like. Perfection, what, what that was like. Simplicity. That's why you want to go live the van life. Try it. It'll probably last about six months, okay? That's, that's the thing. It's like simplicity and, and all that. It's calling you back there. But, but we think, I'm just going to find it there and there and there. And we, and we never run out of theirs, do we? Life will always offer you another there. And then you get there and what? You're there with that hole, with that space in your heart. And see, Jesus comes along later because Solomon, he's going to remind us. What, what Solomon does, even though, though he doesn't have the perspective, is he's going to point us towards Jesus. Because he's going to say, hey, young people, at the very end, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. The book's been out a while. You should have read it, okay? So, spoiler alert, the very end of the book, he's going to say, young people, listen up. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you're young, don't live your life the way I did. Discover meaning early and give your life to something worth giving it to. Follow Jesus. He's going to say for the whole thing, when it boils down to it, is fear God and keep his commands. Live in a right relationship with him. Understand, this life is his grace and mercy towards you. Even the grace of enjoying the simple things in life, that's his mercy. But at a much deeper level, he's pointed to Jesus, who offers you real life, eternal life. And Jesus will come onto the scene, and as we saw months ago in John chapter 4, he'll talk to this woman who's tried it all, who's had all the men, and, and she's left empty. And he'll say, and she comes to the well, and he says, you're thirsty, aren't you? I can offer you water where you will thirst no more. I have something that will fill that space in your heart. You were created for relationship with me. And here's what I know is every time that we get off of this, like you, some of you, you're believers, you've experienced this, but every time we get away from this and we start thinking again that, well, maybe that, maybe that, maybe that, that's when you discover I hate life and futility, right? Do anybody want to be honest that's been a believer for decades and say, I've experienced that a few times. I experienced a close, I'll be the first to raise my hand, right? <laughs> there's been decades, like years, oh, and then there's been seasons, I'm like, well, maybe if I get that. And I'm like, I hate life. That's because you were created for him. Would you stand? We're going to sing a song because Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me. And here's what I want you to do as we sing. For some of you, maybe that, that means having praying, maybe just stretching out your hands. or just a posture like that of, God, I want to receive from you. I need Jesus what only you can give. Because, God, you're alive. Would you come and do that in my heart right now? I'm inviting you. I'm asking you to do what only you can do. Would you invite him to do that? And I'll come back up and pray for us.